Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by CJ McKinney, my colleague. We are covering January 2021. We are starting with us um, some, some developments in asylum law before going on to cover some business immigration, the Hong Kong BNO visa, and some tribunal decisions on long residence and finishing off with some stuff on the um, hostile environment. So uh, if you'd like to claim CPD points for listening to the podcast, then head over to Free Movement and sign up as a member there. Uh, CJ, over to you to get started. Thanks, Colin. There's been this big case on human trafficking, which also says some interesting things about credibility in asylum cases more generally. The cases MN and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2020 EWCA Civ 1746. And that was handed down just before Christmas. We covered it in January. So it's, it's not particularly new anymore, but it is important. And so the main trafficking argument was basically that people who are accepted as potential victims of trafficking should get state support, even if they're later rejected at the second stage of the trafficking process. Now, that argument didn't succeed, so we won't dwell on it. But there were some other aspects of the case that are helpful. So uh, credibility, this question of whether an asylum seeker is basically telling the truth about what happened to them. There is a bit in the case where the court looks at how the opinion of experts uh, on credibility factors in. So if you have a doctor giving medical evidence in a case and the doctor is asked, what do they think about this person's credibility? Does that doctor's opinion carry any weight? And the Court of Appeal says, uh, yes, an expert's opinion on credibility should be taken seriously. It's not conclusive, but an immigration judge should should take that expert's opinion into account. And I think that overrules some older authority that was maybe a bit more sniffy about experts weighing in on on credibility. Yeah, it's it's quite an interesting one. It's hard to recommend somebody actually sits down and reads it because it weighs in at 353 paragraphs, which is absolutely huge. And a lot of the kind of um, main substance of what it covers is, as you say, about this trafficking issue, which is fairly narrow and ultimately doesn't succeed either. It's an important argument, but doesn't succeed. But the, the particular sort of reason why I wanted to write this one up for for free movement was that I think it is interesting on this stuff about credibility and also um, expert evidence. I'm not sure it overrules anything. I don't, don't think it represents a particular change of approach. And it just re- sort of reinforces that expert evidence is important, um, that it has to be considered as part of the decision-making process, not after the decision-making process on sort of somebody's truthfulness. This, this is um, the judgment is by Lord Justice Underhill, who's become some of a something of a sort of Mister Fixit in the Court of Appeal for um, things that the tribunal has gone wrong on on, on immigration stuff. Um, and it was him who was behind the the very good series of judgments we've seen from the Court of Appeal on um, unduly harsh and deportation, for example. He's, he's had a few. You know, mega judgments like this recently. Um, on credibility, he says that it's used a good deal in the context of both asylum appeals and of decisions whether a person is a victim of trafficking. And we've detected a tendency to treat it as having some special technical meaning. But in truth, it connotes no more than whether the applicant's account is to be believed. And I think that's really important. Because I, I, I really object to the whole notion of credibility or the concept of credibility as it's kind of come to evolve in asylum decision making is the idea that essentially the idea is that i think it means you're a lying liar who lies when somebody says your your credibility is damaged but people don't say it like that you know that's quite impolite frankly when you say somebody's a liar but that's that's actually what people mean by it 
Um, and all this stuff in, in Section 8 of the 2004 legislation about your credibility is damaged if you behave in a certain way. It's just, it's just I, 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 I was trying to think of a more polite way of saying it, but I'm, I'm not going to. It's just bollocks. I'm sorry to say that. It's just rubbish. You know, th- there's no evidence that genuine asylum seekers behave in the ways that are dictated by Section 8. It's a matter of sort of wishful thinking by politicians, um, not not based on objective reality in any way, shape or form. And actually, it doesn't damage somebody's truthfulness if they didn't claim asylum in a, in a third country, because it's just not any reasonable or objective way of distinguishing between a genuine and a, a false asylum seeker under the refugee convention um it might be not how ministers want asylum seekers to behave but that's not that it actually damages your truthfulness so this whole kind of notion of credibility as a kind of your uh, something an attribute that you have or a characteristic you have as a person i just don't think works in asylum cases but you see it used all the time. And I, I've been trying to move away from it in my own skeleton arguments for a good two or three years now, if not longer. I try not to use the term I talk about truthfulness instead. And I'd, I'd sort of recommend that as a way forward for other people as well. Yeah, certainly the Court of Appeal seems to think, or at least Underhill, that uh, the law has kind of taken a wrong term or practice has taken a wrong term in terms of credibility being this highfalutin legal concept. Uh, he, he refers to at one point, uh, the, the, what we're after here is common sense decision making, um, which isn't always a, a phrase you necessarily hear judges use talking about common sense. And it kind of speaks to what you were saying about like, all we're after here is, is this person telling the truth or not? Let's not kind of overcomplicate the concept. Yeah. I, good luck. Common sense in immigration decision making. That's, that's something of a, you know, uh, needle in a haystack but um yeah and, and, the, and the other problem i didn't mention when i was talking earlier the other problem with credibility is that this whole notion of lying lie who lies doesn't work very well particularly in asylum cases where it's recognized that people may well lie about some things and not others and you know we, we saw this course of appeal judgment a few years back referring to the lucas direction you sometimes get in criminal trials where the judge is supposed to remind the jury that People might lie about one thing. It doesn't mean they're lying about everything, essentially. I'm sort of paraphrasing that quite badly. But you know, that, that's been long-standing understanding, in theory, in asylum cases since the, you know, the mid-90s and the tribunal first started to actually deal with asylum cases, cases like Chiva, Casolo, and so on. And um, you know, that, that whole notion that if you're lying about one thing, you must be lying about other things just doesn't work. So there's, there's even less reason to use this notion of credibility in asylum than in other areas of law. Next up on Asylum, we spoke on the last podcast about these new rules on admissibility and safe third countries. So the Home Office kind of giving itself the power to just refuse to consider an asylum claim if the person has travelled through another supposedly safe country en route to the UK, which is likely to be lots and lots of asylum seekers, uh, given the UK's geographical position. And we did speak about this in the last episode, and you were saying this is likely to kind of leave people in limbo add to delays in the system and since then you've published a really extensive briefing on this whole subject so maybe without repeating yourselves too much is there anything you discovered in researching that that you wanted to to highlight no and it, it's i think we we covered it last time don't really want to go over it in detail again i mean, might with the things with the law as it stands today where this kind of inadmissibility procedure is just built into the immigration rules it's not in statute and there is no actual uh, agreement with a third country to to in order to to facilitate or allow these kind of removals to take place it, this this is just kind of nonsense essentially what's in the domestic rules is just nonsense because it doesn't lead anywhere all it does is delay asylum claims 
Um, I'm quite nervous about what future primary legislation we may see on this. Um, and I, I sort of think I close the, um, the piece by, by talking about that. I, know I wouldn't be surprised if we're looking at um, the return to kind of whitelist, um, safe third country um, stuff that we had in the 90s. Um, I, you, you might well see inadmissibility having statutory footing and so there not being much that judges can do about it. I, I don't know. And um, of course, things do change somewhat if there are actually some agreements with third countries as well. And this this actually starts to have sort of proper teeth and is actually enforceable. But at the moment, neither of those things is true. Finally, uh, on asylum, there's been another judgment to do with the government's written policy on uh, asylum seekers working, uh, declaring that policy unlawful insofar as it doesn't say that exceptions can be made to the general rules, which are quite restrictive on asylum seekers working. And this again came up in the last episode because the High Court uh, issued a ruling saying just that in December, but now the Upper Tribunal has uh, decided basically the same thing, uh, different legal arguments, but the same conclusion. The policy needs to be amended to mention that exceptions are possible in theory. And I think last time, Con, you pointed out that, you know, this is welcome so far as it goes, but it doesn't actually mean that anyone will be able to successfully rely on that ex- exception. They can just stick in a line saying it's possible and then not necessarily grant any exceptions. Yeah, don't necessarily believe everything you read in the newspapers when these kind of judgments come out, or in fact, necessarily in the press releases that sometimes um, accompany them. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's good news, but it's not quite as good as perhaps might have been made out at the time. Uh, that upper tribunal judgment is uh, JR-1414-2020, uh, unreported, and you can find a copy on the website. So then the business immigration, there has been a statement of changes to the immigration rules, which makes, um, I think, some pretty minor amendments just arising out of the Brexit trade deal that was agreed on Christmas Eve. So uh, it's pretty well known that there's very little on migration in that EU-UK deal, but there are some quite narrow, limited provisions on mobility, so sort of movement of people to support trade and services, and they are in the deal, and now they've been written into the immigration rules. So if you are lucky enough to be a contractual service supplier or independent professional, as defined by the General uh, Agreement on Trade and Services, um, and you're supplying services in certain sectors covered by this deal, you can now work in the EU for up to 12 months, uh, and vice versa for EU service suppliers coming here. Uh, So basically it helps potentially if you're an accountant, a management consultant, you're contracted to an EU country, you might be able to stay a bit longer than would otherwise have been the case. But I guess my main takeaway from all this was just how limited these sort of mobility provisions are. Um, There's been a lot of discussion in the press, uh, obviously, about how they don't cover touring musicians. They've become this kind of totem of of how limited it is. Um, And yeah, it just seems like a lot of companies, a lot of business people, a lot of uh, touring musicians, uh, people in loads of sectors are really going to miss free movement. Yeah, I suspect so. And, um, you know, people are often a bit shocked to learn that they can't um, move around as they would wish and that um, you know, there are rules on these things. Occasionally I have clients who are horrified by um, the fact that visa law actually applies to them and so on. And um, I think there's going to be going to be more of that. You know, people have gotten used to free movement between the UK and the EU and they're going to have to get used to it not being there in future. Take a look at that statement of changes if you're maybe advising businesses who want to send EU-based workers to the UK. It might be a useful statement of changes CP361 published on the 31st of December. 
and then there uh, there's a case rel- relevant to business immigration at Taj uh, twenty. 20- 21 EWCA Civ 19. So Mr. Taj was applying for permission to remain in the UK on a business visa and he failed a genuineness test. So the Home Office considered he didn't have a genuine business in the UK. He challenged that refusal and his argument was, well, if you had concerns about my business not being genuine, then the, uh, as a rule of procedural fairness, uh, he should have been told about those concerns before his application was refused outright. Maybe he uh, could be given a chance to address the concerns, provide more evidence that he did, in fact, have a business. But the Court of Appeal said no, and it sort of said that the nature of the business immigration system, the points-based system, is that it's, quote-unquote, open and transparent, which is perhaps a take that raised a few eyebrows. Um, and so Mr. Taj, you know, you knew what the rules were, including that there was a genuineness assessment Procedural fairness doesn't mean you have a right to sort of a dialogue with the decision makers about weaknesses in your application. Uh, and that was despite that recent Supreme Court case in Pathan, um, the Court of Appeal distinguished that one. So my main takeaway was that, you know, even though we had that Pathan Supreme Court decision that uh, allowed a procedural fairness argument in this kind of business context, uh, we discussed it in episode, episode 82. Despite that case, it's still going to be pretty hard to make these procedural unfairness arguments uh, in the points-based system context. Yeah, and the difference was that in in Pathan, um, it was outside his control. It was something that he wasn't, he had no control over at all. Whereas in theory, um, he had control, um, you know, his own application and his own paperwork that had been submitted and so on. But um, yeah, it's quite galling when you see judges on the one hand, saying how terrible the rules are and how incomprehensible they are. And yeah, I've got my favourite list of quotes that I roll out from time to time. Um, and then you've got um, sometimes exactly the same judges saying, oh, no, but it's a clear and transparent system and everybody knows what the rules are. It's like, oh, well, you, you can't believe both of those things at the same time. Um, but, uh, there you go. Uh, a couple of decisions from the Immigration Tribunal then. And first up, up is a case on the concept of a historic injustice. Uh, so this is where you have, uh, quote, a belated recognition by the United Kingdom government that a particular class of persons was wrongly treated in immigration terms in the past, end quote. And an example of that is the Gurkhas. And basically what this case says is that if you are one of those who suffered a historic injustice, you'll usually be allowed to stay in the UK, provided there's nothing material, materially adverse in your immigration history. And that is contrasted with a mere historical injustice where an individual has been treated uh, potentially very badly by the Home Office, maybe extreme delays in decision making, or they just completely botched the law. Um, but such people don't have an expectation that they'll win uh, their immigration case just because of what they've suffered in the past. It's only if they're part of this broader historic injustice that they have a very strong case to remain. Uh, so that judgment Patel, Historic Injustice, NIAA, Part 5A, India, 2020, UKUT 351 IAC. Yeah, I really, really don't like this determination. <laughs> it's really, really bad. It's really unprincipled. And the idea that you win if there has been a belated de- uh, sort of recognition by the government, but you don't. Basically, it's just a consideration if there hasn't been a belated recognition by the government is just that's really dangerous. And it's just ridiculous. It's 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 really sort of teleological reasoning when you start to think about it. And you, know, you have to think, 
well, how about the position of Windrush people, for example? You know, okay, they, they all win once. You know, some other people have won, but not before. And it's just, I think it's a really bad judgment. And it's also all obiter. I don't think there was any need for them to to get into this stuff. Um, so, I really bad, really objectionable determination. I, I'm sitting on the fence on this one, as you can see. <laughs> absolutely tell, tell us what you really think well hopefully that uh, those concepts don't grain, gain broader traction but we shall see uh, the other tribunal case is on the question of when an immigration decision based on human rights can be appealed so again kind of arguably hair splitting concepts um, at issue um, on the one hand you have a human rights application and on the, the other hand you have a human rights claim and you cannot appeal against refusal of a human rights application but you can appeal against the refusal of a human rights claim, is the finding. So the difference uh, between these two things is perhaps rather subtle, but uh, we can illustrate it by the facts of the case. So Mr. Eurokin uh, from Nigeria applied to remain in the UK for, I, I think, a, would have been a standard two and a half years um, based on his human rights. And the Home Office responded by granting him just six months of leave outside the rules. And he tried to appeal. And what the Upper Tribunal says is, no, you can't appeal. Your human rights claim was accepted in the sense that they looked at your human rights issues and gave you six months. Uh, your specific uh, application to stay for a longer period, that's what was refused, and there's no right of appeal against an application. So hopefully that makes some sense. In that case, Eurokin Refusal of Claim, Mujahid, Nigeria, 2020, UK, UT, 377, IAC. Yeah, not that keen on this one either, but it's not as uh, it's not as objectionable in principle. I don't feel as as that last one we were looking at. Um, and it, yeah, I think um, it's um, Deputy President Ockleton this one, and he, he talks about it being inconceivable that it was intended. Blah blah blah. It's not inconceivable, you know. There, there has been a right of appeal against um, allowed applications in the past. I think I'm right in saying. Um, and it, it's not an inevitable reading of the you know the statutory language that it that it, there might be an appeal. So seeing that kind of frankly hyperbole in a in a head note is is unhelpful. Um, and it's you know I think it was arguable. It wasn't inconceivable. Um, but it's at the same time this is just reiterating things that the tribunal's already found for other reasons in other contexts. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'd agree with this one. Ideally, you know, I certainly don't agree with the strength with which it's expressed. Um, but um, it's a fairly technical distinction. Yeah, well, the tribunal has seen fit to report it officially, and so do we. So then the Hong Kong BNO visa, which we discussed on previous episodes and on the website, is now live, open for applications. Uh, but the smartphone app allowing people to apply without visiting a visa application centre doesn't launch until the 23rd of February, so maybe worth waiting a few more days until that's available but broadly all going pretty much to plan there in terms of having this route open it's good news for in theory millions of, of hong kong residents uh, any further reflections on that scheme no not really i mean it's upsetting slightly to see it being sold in terms of economic benefits rather than sort of morally the right thing to do and it's also very uncomfortable seeing you know some refugees are okay as long as they can pay basically and and, and they're economic economically valuable whereas other refugees aren't that's it's you know not not happy making frankly but absolutely this visa is the right thing to do and it's uh, and these people are obviously very welcome to to come 
there is a long resident case that I wrote up myself, and I I thought this was really interesting because uh, the chap in question he was a Bangladeshi citizen called Sultan Mahmood, and he had basically stolen someone's identity. He had a national insurance number and and other documents and, and the whole life basically in the name of Rezel Karim, a British citizen, and he lived as Rezel Karim for over a decade. So he was able to work, he was able to escape the notice of the immigration authorities until he hit twenty years in the UK. And at that point, you can apply to regularise your stay, even if the 20 years residence has been unlawful uh, entirely or, or in part. So he applied under this 20-year rule. The Home Office said, no, we're refusing you on suitability grounds because you've been sort of lying to the government all these many years. Um, but the Upper Tribunal uh, said, no, no, the, the only way you could refuse him under the suitability provisions is if he had lied to the Home Office. Essentially, the fact that he uh, misrepresented himself to HMRC and other branches of the state is neither here nor there, uh, based on just how the immigration rules are, are worded. Uh, so he won and he gets to stay. And that case is tw- citation 2020 UKUT 376 IAC. And I guess I, I, while I was interested, I, I guess I was a little taken aback by the story. Maybe that's reflected in how it came out in the article. It just seems a bit crazy. But then, you know, I, I stood back and I thought, well, Maybe this is the 20-year rule working as it's supposed to, because if the rule is, if you make it to 20 years, it doesn't matter what you've been up to, if you've been unlawful the whole time, short of being you know, a serious criminal or whatever, then then that's the rule, and, and fair enough. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, you, you have learned a great deal about immigration law, CJ, in the time that you've been working with free movement, but you haven't been a practicing immigration lawyer. And I guess that shows when you say something like that, because, you know, th- this is exactly, you know, if, you, if you're going to stay in the country for 20 years, you kind of have to have a false identity or something. You've got to be dishonest or, or, or whatever in some way, because you've got to have broken or almost. There's, it's conceivable you might not have about, in theory, just about somehow might not have broken the law by being born here or something like that. But you know, basically, you've you've broken the law. You've probably been dishonest in some way. If you've been working, you've you've been doing that illegally, and and so on. And also that there is a big fat old case all about this as well called ZH Bangladesh, which only gets a really glancing reference. I, I looked through the determination, puzzled that this had even been reported because it's it's just such a sort of basic point. It was, you know, really comprehensively dealt with by Lord Justice Sedley in this 2009 case. And it does get a reference at paragraph 60, I think it is, of the determination. It doesn't refer to the sort of famous quote from Sedley about this being the whole point of the, the old 14-year rule as it then was and so on. Um, but and, you know, at least they have at least they have cited the the, the judgments, and one would expect um, Upper Tribunal Judge Bloom and Upper Tribunal Judge O'Callaghan, both of whom were practicing lawyers and have no doubt acted in many fourteen-year rule cases in their day, um, to to be, to be familiar with it. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's not a surprise if you're if, if you're a practicing lawyer to come across this kind of scenario, and it's not this outcome isn't a surprise if you've been following this area of law as well. Jolly good. Uh, well, that was uh, perhaps uh, a waste of time if we, all we had to do was cite that old case. But uh, that's where we're... Uh, it's, an, it's, an, it's an interesting <laughs> case, um, and it, it's it's you know it is good to see that point being made that. You know, the whole point of the the twenty year rule is to offer regularization to people who have been outside the law, and and if you then exclude them because they've been outside the law or something, then they, you've defeated the whole purpose of that rule. Yeah, absolutely. As 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 you say, there's very few ways to live outside the system for twenty years without, without breaking a bunch of laws. Um, let us uh, speaking of unauthorized migrants, uh, the hostile environment. So. 
these immigration policies that make it hard for uh, the unauthorized migrants to access basic services and to work unless they they get creative like Mr. Mahmoud. Um, and the, I suppose the vague idea from the government point of view behind these policies is that if people can't live their lives um, while living illegally in the UK, they'll find uh, life so intolerable that they'll just leave. Uh, but the immigration inspector has said in a recent report published on 12th of January that uh, the government doesn't know if this actually works in practice. And the context of the report was fines for employers who hire illegal workers, which is part of the hostile environment. And the inspector says there's a lack of complete and accurate performance data, um, meaning that the government has no way of knowing if there's an actual impact on behavior from these fines. And that really echoes many, many previous reports and inspection findings on other aspects of the hostile environment over many years. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's good to see the inspectors sort of um, following up on this. And we've seen many reports actually saying basically the same thing as well from 2016 onwards, I think. Um, and this kind of leads on to our, our last blog post we we're going to cover, which is uh, an article that I co-wrote with Dr. Melanie Griffiths for Critical Social Policy on the Hostile Environment, which we we started in 2016. <laughs> it's taken us like four years, basically, to, to well, over four years to get it written. Um, because to be fair, a few things happened along the way, like the actual Windrush scandal sort of exploding and the hostile environment becoming much better known than it was back in 2016 because of that. But w- one of the things that I think belatedly we realised while we were writing this um, article was that the hostile environment we we t- kind of try to rationalize it after the event as having some sort of evidence based sort of purpose behind it that's that it would have some rational purpose some impact on um immigration figures or something like that but actually i'm not sure that was true i think it was always a moral crusade it was always a values based policy about it being the right thing to do to stop people having access to these things, irrespective of what happened to them. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily about forcing them out. And you, you mentioned in the uh, critical social policy article, there, there's, uh, I think, a select committee appearance by senior Home Office officials, and they say pretty much what you've just said, that like whether it works or, or it doesn't work, it's the right thing to do, so we do it anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that really sort of stuck with me when I read it. That was actually it's actually from um, a previous inspection report, I think, as early as 2016. And then um, an old friend of mine, a guy called Stephen Muirs, was um, has written a book on values based policy making. He was at the civil service for a very long time, and um, it re- again, this really struck me when I was looking through what he'd written about. Um, you know, he was talking about positive progressive values essentially um, informing policy making, and that being very important. And well, unfortunately, you know. The room there is room for disagreement about um, values and what I consider to be pretty negative values um, informed the hostile environment not not evidence essentially it wasn't an evidence based policy and analysing it through that lens or in that way I think is is in some ways a mistake because that's not what it was about in the first place. There you go. So if anyone is interested in those issues and wants to read your deep dive, uh, it's uh, available free online, Critical Social Policy, co-authored with Melanie Griffiths. Uh, If you Google some of those terms, you will no doubt find it, and it comes highly recommended. Right. Thanks for listening. That is everything from me and CJ, so we'll be back next month. Goodbye. Goodbye.